Welcome to Your Other Mother, stories of early queer family making. The next person you're about to meet is an artist from Boston. She was raised by her two moms and, like me, loves talking about it. Sammy and I met six years ago when she gathered her own stories from young people growing up in queer families. She interviewed me. Since then, we've become dear friends, mostly online, but once gloriously in my grandmother's backyard for a family barbecue. Some things you might want to know about Sammy are that she's white, she's Jewish, she works with teenagers at a creative school, and she makes pottery on the back porch of her triple-decker in the middle of the city. In this episode, we talk about grandparents' ways of relating to their queer children and their domestic lives, the embodied experience of growing up knowing your family is different, the language around adoption and family making, and so much more. I can't wait for you to listen. So, 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 so many different elements of this. Like, my mom's being gay was the open secret for my grandparents. And over the last decade, probably four years ago, five years ago, I interviewed my grandmother as part of the Gathering Voices project. And um, because eventually she called me on the phone and she was like, this project that you're doing, I really think you should talk to me because I'm the original and I've seen it all. So I was like, okay, Nana, I'll bring my recorder. So, but then we had this really beautiful conversation, like really, really beautiful as part of a longer week long visit. And, um, you know, I've never heard my grandmother say the words gay. I've never heard her introduce my mom as my mom. Um, is her daughter. Yeah. So it's like, and then her daughter. And then I am my grandmother's biological daughter. And so I just, that was kind of intuitive for my grandmother to understand, right? Like I'm her biological granddaughter. She, the world, like the sun rose and set with us as her grandkids. Um, and, and she also had a really, really rich social life. Like even this past week, she died at 98 and the the service was full of people, like full, even though she was almost a hundred years old and all of her friends had passed. It was just like her more recent friends, the children and grandchildren of her childhood friends. Like it was just this really beautiful thing, which is all to say that my grandmother had really close relationships throughout her life and a very big social sphere. And she told me during this interview with her over the last five years that she never once talked about my mom and her being gay until after my grandfather died, which was when they, my grandmother and grandfather were both 88 years old. And why? I think it was a little bit humiliating to her. Um, to have a gay child? To have a gay child. Um because exactly like you mentioned about your aunts and uncles, my grandmother wanted her her life and by extension her daughter's life to be this understandable heterosexual narrative. Um, like my grandmother said things to me like, well, all children should have a father. It's just better with a father. And I'm like, what's better? The people, the life, the experience? And she wouldn't extrapolate on that. Mm. That was obviously super hurtful to me. But for the purpose of this interview, I just kind of like sat with that and let that go um, or let that be. 
Um, but so, you know, I think she wanted to have a daughter who lived in suburban Cleveland and had a husband and 2.5 kids and they would all have family dinners together on Sunday. And it wasn't about the person even, it was about the narrative. And when my mom's life somewhat radically departed from that and in otherwise did not radically depart from that literally at all. But in my grandmother's mind, my mom had just kind of left all of that fantasy behind. Um, that felt, I think, really crushing to my grandmother. And in her own way, she was very welcoming to my mom. Um, and then later with my mom's current partner. But it's not what she would have wanted. And she never understood the language of how to introduce anybody to mm -hmm. each other. Um, and when I said, you know, but Nana, like, how could you have not talked to your friends about this? She was like, well, my friends, she's like, my friends are not dumb. They knew what was going on. It just wasn't something that we talked about. And then I think the, the loneliness of losing her partner made it so that she talked to maybe one or two close friends mm. about everything. And then when I came out, first of all, I was never going to come out to my grandmother. It didn't mm -hmm. go worth it to me. Understood. I, you know, like, I relate. Oh, why would I do that? It's irrelevant to me. I, I am who I am. And I was self-protective. I didn't want to have a rift in my relationship with her. Um, but then when I met and I knew that was going to be my partner in life, I needed to tell my grandmother about her because I needed my grandmother to meet her. Like it was not an option for, I'm getting full body chills talking about mm. it again. It was not an option for me to have a lifelong partnership with someone who had not met my grandmother. Mm -hmm. So I had to tell my grandmother, it was an incredibly scary conversation, but then my grandmother, like my grandmother met and was like, Oh, hilarious. She's beautiful. She's easy to be around. She's generous. Like was this person that my grandmother just thought was awesome because she is. And so then my grandmother would always ask about her. And if my grandmother sent me slipper socks in the mail, I had a pair in the mail too, you know, or when she sent us pairs every winter and it would be addressed to Sammy. Oh, that's um, amazing. But my grandmother still never had the language to explain was like even when she was talking to me she would never be like she would never ask about my domestic life she would never ask about my relationship and I think she probably would have if I had been with a man mm -hmm. but she always asked about you know and when she came into Cleveland she never explained who she was or she never introduced as my granddaughter's partner mm -hmm. but she always introduced me and like was very inclusive of her so to believe that my grandmother, if I was with a man, would be interested in the quality of my relationship. Would probably even be interested like when we bought a new couch mm -hmm. and what that process, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? From like the deep to the totally mundane, I think she would be curious about that. And she would wanna know, well, what's it like when you moved in together? And how does it feel, you know, and I now own a home together. And it's like, what did that feel like to buy with somebody or blah, blah, blah. And they just, none of those questions came. And so, mm. I think that's where the distance came for me with my grandmother. It wasn't that she stopped loving me or that we had less of a relationship. It's that like she couldn't figure out ways to be curious about my like domestic life anymore. 
And so we had that level of distance, which, which I do mourn. I felt, I feel quite sad about that. Um, at the same time, as I know that the love was very real and very mm -hmm. deep, you know what I mean? Like Definitely. there's just, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just repeating myself now, but there was just some level of distance that I wish that we could have reached. Mm -hmm. um, no, it makes complete sense. I, it's so hard to, it's interesting. It's like, you know, when you think in the abstract, you think about someone else's family, like, well, if they don't accept your gay ass a hundred percent, you got to cut them off. Then it's like, it's completely impossible or it's really, really, it's just so complex to, to apply that same, like, it's just not possible to apply that same logic in your own life. Right. It's really easy in the abstract to be like, yes, if someone doesn't accept every part of you, they don't deserve one part of you, but I, I just don't think that's how the world works. And yeah. I completely agree with you, Annalise, but I also just had to sit with the fact that like, she didn't, she didn't understand what this dynamic was like. And I, I think also having grown up seeing that dynamic with my mom, I probably carried some of my mom's lowercase slash like maybe uppercase trauma into my own relationship with my grandmother because mm -hmm. my grandmother was quite brutal to my mom in those first couple of years that she came out um so I think I carried some of that and I'm just like growing up in a queer family the quality of love like what that looks like and what acceptance looks like is like deeply nuanced it's deeply deeply nuanced and I've come to appreciate that in some way even though it wasn't easy it didn't always feel good um I didn't always feel my most comfortable or authentic when I couldn't just be open about my family or be easeful about my family but I think it's probably given me a greater appreciation for emotional nuance in all relationships and for all reasons, like love can, can look many, many different ways. And love can actually hold hands with homophobia, even if that doesn't feel comfortable and it's not our dream state, mm -hmm. you know, like, is that the ultimate and the best? No, but like, is that reality? And do we work with it? Yeah. Can you tell me a little more about like that sense of dis-ease? I just, I'm really curious to hear more about that. Like, because I feel a profound uh, resonance with that. Mm. Well, like, I think a big part was just like watching my moms try and navigate their relationship when we were outside of our super liberal bubble of like gay Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, you know, because all of my parents' friends were either queer or accepting is like so pales in comparison to the life that I actually led. Like it was so vibrant and open and out and just like nobody even had to talk about being gay unless people were talking about their old ex-girlfriends together because it was just obvious and mundane on a, on a certain level, right? Um, but then all of a sudden to be in different environments, namely with my grandparents, in which it was no longer mundane and it was actually quite uncomfortable. Like I would watch people be uncomfortable trying to describe my family. And then I felt like, 
how could this be? Because I don't feel uncomfortable with my family. And then it made it, it made me acutely aware of places where I could be myself and comfortable, which was 98% of my life. And then places where people were awkward around language and you just had to kind of deal, you know, and I, right. Like I felt kind of tight in my body. I always felt dehydrated. I always wanted to eat a lot of sugar, like <laughs> lots of different things. And that's probably starting at like six or seven. I started really being able to pick up on that and articulate what, where that feeling was coming from. Um, it's like a radar. It's like a homophobia radar that even a child has is just astonishing. I mean, it just goes to show that children are utterly sensitive to adult, adult behavior, right? We just don't have the same range of terminology to describe it or the life experience, but we're absolutely sensitive to it as children. I, 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 I can, you're, you're making me think of specific memories I had where I had a, the exact same experience of feeling like extreme discomfort and an awareness that other people were not okay or happy with looking at me and my mom's, but like, it's like, how can a child know that? But you do. It's so painful for me because, um, it's, it's so like, I'm thinking about what our moms would think if they heard us saying this. And, um, I just don't want them to feel like any sense of blame or responsibility. Cause it's, you know what I mean? Like I, um, like, I'm just, I'm like, oh my God, like the fact that we lived in this and live in this homophobic society that would make a child feel a sense of wrongfulness. Like, I like it's really complex because it's like, as or I, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's like, as a kid, I, 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 I feel so appreciative to hear you say like you felt in 99 or 98% of your life, you felt like that immense love and safety and, and, and um, normalcy and mundanity in your queer, queer life. I'm like so glad that you got that. And and obviously as a child, like you, because of the way you were raised in your family, like there was a, a profound sense of rightfulness within your family, right? Like you and you knew that you and your moms and your siblings had like, you had the good stuff. It was only when you were placed into other environments that others like brought their baggage in to disrupt that, right? And so I'm just so like frustrated that, you know, a child could that we live in this world when we were growing up where like as children we had to contend with the fact that we felt a deep sense of rightfulness about our relationship to our moms but that when we went out into society or interacted with certain people or in certain environments that others made us feel wrong mm -hmm. um it just like it just like breaks my heart and makes me so like how dare you all make children feel that way you know that makes me think about how much easier would it have been for your moms, my moms to have less of a relationship with their mm. parents and they chose to continue having a relationship for any number of reasons, out of loyalty, out of guilt, out of genuine love, out of wanting to work through it, out of, yeah, that part sucks, but it's worth it, whatever the reasons are. And maybe it was even for us, like, I think you know, every single vacation, we didn't go on vacations. We went to my grandparents' house, mm. right? Even though all of this was in the background. Mm -hmm. And I think we did that because of a love for my grandparents, but also because my parents wanted us to have a really strong relationship with them. And that makes me feel 
deeply grateful Mm -hmm. for my parents. My parents could have, either one of them could have made the decision to just maintain more of a solo relationship with their parents Mm -hmm. and not bring the kids around because it was too complicated or too hard or they didn't want to expose us to that. But they were like, no, this is my life. This is my family. If you want to hang out with me, you hang out with my kids and my partner. And I think that's a really brave thing that they did. Like, I would rather have that and the awkwardness than have had no relationship at yep. all. Yeah, it really speaks to how magnanimous and generous your parents were to, and my mom, I guess, too, unbeknownst to me at the time, to, I guess, like swallow their pain or their complex feelings about the situation and be like, this is for my kid or this is for, I don't want to say the greater good, but you know what I mean? Um, Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, that was a pretty, that was pretty big of them to, to, to put aside yeah and they did it not knowing what your relationship might be they did it perhaps not knowing or only being able to guess or assume how your grandparents were going to treat you and your siblings right so it was like kind of an act of faith I think there's an element to I don't know if this was true for your family because you have a different and differently complex situation but when my so I'm one of three kids in my family and when we were born it brought my parents closer to their parents mm. because we I mean how could you say no to a grandkid right like that's <laughs> <laughs> beggars can't be choosers <laughs> right like that's kind of the ultimate and certainly in my family at least that's how it went and exactly beggars can't be choosers so like you know when my grandmother was doing homophobic things I was like you know you better get with the program because your entire living family is queer so this is what you got you know, and I think I they it. did. I think they got with the program yeah. because they wanted to have a relationship with their grandkids. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what your grand, I was thinking your grandma in particular, what her relationship is like to your siblings? Love, 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 love. Like I, I can show you, but it won't show up on the audio, but like I'm in the dressing area of my grandmother's and my grandparents' room. Every wall is full of paintings of us that my mom painted. Oh, that's years. so cool. Oh, I'm going to need to see some pics. <laughs> yeah, like it's, I'm basically in a museum of myself right now. <laughs> Incredible. As it should be. <laughs> that says and a lot. Totally. And where I really resonate with you too, Annalise, is like with the adoption piece, my older brother is adopted and he's a different race and he's not biologically related to any of us. Um, and I think that was very confusing, mostly racially for my grandparents. Um, But not confusing enough that they had a different or strained relationship with him. Like Mm -hmm. he's one of the three grandkids, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, That's on my list to talk about. If you want to, if we could pivot for a moment and put a pin in this. Um, So something that I've been coming up against in this project is that the vast majority, so Unlike you, I did not grow up around other people who had um, queer parents, right? I did not grow up in a, in a super robust queer community. My parents had a lot of lesbian friends and some gay male friends, but overwhelmingly, like, I didn't, among their friends, they were they were the first to have kids and some of the only. Um, so I have a pretty limited pool of folks that, uh, of who, who grew up in, you know, parent in households with two moms or two dads or other queer combinations. So... It's really interesting because like my little slice, my little intersection of 
children of queers is is mostly white people. I can think of like aside from your family, one other family, uh, some other family friends who not coincidentally raised their kid in Boston, um, where one of the moms is white and one of the moms is black, and their child is biracial. So something I've been thinking about and like thinking about a lot in this context is just like the thinking about the ways in which whiteness and access to um, creating a family kind of overlap, right? Um, like how white supremacy impacts queers' ability to build a family. Um, like I don't think it's a coincidence that like white queers were some of the first people to be able to adopt children, right? Or build their families in the ways they wanted to because they had, you know, benefits to of, of being able to access certain resources. So I'm really interested if, you know, maybe we could talk a little about, about um, I mean, it's like a we could spend hours talking about this, but, you know, your family is so interesting in that way and that like you have an interracial, you know, you and your siblings have an interracial family and with white moms. So I don't know, like, I don't have a firm question, but I just love to hear a little bit about how that, I guess, fits into the, how that puzzle piece fits into all this. Yeah. Okay. So the origin story is that my mom really wanted to have kids, right? One of my moms in particular, and then my other mom was like, okay, this is the journey. Let's do the thing. Um, and tried, tried, tried for about a year um, to get pregnant. I have one mom who's about eight years older than the other one. So she tried to get pregnant first. And then when her time came for their like next appointment at the sperm bank, she was like, I just can't do it again. It's just like, it's been too hard. I don't want to do it. I don't know why she ever even tried to get pregnant. She really doesn't like babies. I think she would have been terrible at being pregnant, which she fully admits at this point. But anyway, so she was like, I just can't do it. So my other mom was like, well, why don't I take it this month? And I'll try. And she got pregnant right away. Meanwhile, they had also been, before they knew that insemination was an option, about a year and a half, two years earlier, had started an adoption process. Mm -hmm. And they'd been on the wait list, the wait list, the wait list. And they had applied as just one single woman because that was the way to do it because of the laws of the time. So all of this year and a half of planning, trying, applying within four days, they found out that they were both pregnant with me and had been placed with my brother. Oh my God, Sammy, I didn't realize. Yeah. Oh my God, how incredible. Right. So they looked at each other and were like, okay, I guess we're having twins. And so I think my brother um, is 10 months older than me. So he must have been about two months at the time, mm-hmm. trying to get the timeline right. But mm-hmm. something like that. Um, then by the time my mom is four months pregnant, my brother is five months old, four month old pregnant, four months pregnant mom is like, well, I can't get on the plane to go get this baby. So mm-hmm. my other mom goes down and she's more butch. And so she puts on this whole like skirt, you know, she's like in drag, right. To go get this baby, um, as this single allegedly heterosexual woman, I don't think she ever specified that, but that was the, what was was assumed. Yeah. Um, and then they had basically twins and like my mom's raised this baby through the last months of one of my mom's pregnancies. And then they had two cribs in one room and just raised us side by side oh sammy that's wild i did not know (gasps) wow i i just feel like that is such a like um it so epitomizes the just the chance and the happenstance and the fortuitousness and the luck 
that has to happen for queer people to build their families at that time and still but like way more so at that time oh my god totally and like and then we were in the same grade and we you know we just like did everything together basically and my grandparents would buy us little matching outfits and whatever um did it confuse your classmates that you were both in the same grade kind of um so my brother is my indigenous mayan and from guatemala and i am white and ashkenazi jewish and so we look nothing alike um and then eventually when we grew up like i'm i'm like kind of average size now but i was like pretty petite as a kid and um pale white skin and my brother grew up to be like six one and oh my god he's <laughs> like really built and had his dark brown skin and jet black hair so we looked really quite different um and kids in school were like a couple times they made jokes about us having two moms or anyway that's kind of off track but um but I mean, I think my moms were like fierce protectors of us in many ways. Like they went into the school and every year met with each teacher, met with the principal and was like, this is our family. These are our kids. The school had never had a queer family before. Wow. The school was predominantly white because they sent us to private schools. Um, so I think the both the homophobia piece and the racism piece was something that they wanted to talk about quite openly and so then my mom's through certainly through all of my elementary school time they both started and then sat on like the diversity whatever whatever it would be called now it'd probably be the diversity equity and inclusion committee yeah. <laughs> um, they sat on that and started that as a school to try and help the institution get with the times um, and the race piece for sure was there and also my brother has a different last name than I do mm. again, because of laws of the time. Yeah. I guess my parents could have legally changed our name to have a blended name, but they just didn't. And so mm. my brother was technically and legally adopted by one parent with one last name. And I was birthed by my other parent or our other parent and had her last name. Um, so that was always kind of something to explain to kids you know mm -hmm. yeah I feel like I mean it just speaks to how like any slight difference when you're a child it feels enormous you know or, or like I don't think it I think it's because we're ingraining children with bias from birth but it's like any divergence from like the heterosexual norm of family is like needs to be explained right I mean I, I know I have a friend who like she has a mom and a dad and she it's her and her brother and like they each like she got her mom's last name and he got her dad's last name or it's in the inverse I forget but like their whole childhood people just like couldn't understand it and they even have like the white heterosexual family appearance right so I just yeah I think like it's amplified yeah. when you're in a queer when you're the child of queer people and you have a family where um, you have different biological or non-biological relationships to your parents totally I love that as as like a counter example um because I think that's so true. And like in our case, if we had had the same last name, people might have like believed us more mm. easily or, or could have like justified had that we looked different or had two moms. But but then the gift of that for me is 
that now I'm like, oh, you're not biological, biological relationship, sharing blood, sharing a last name. I'm like, that shit is irrelevant. Fully irrelevant. <laughs> like, just could not matter less to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm also keenly aware that right now I'm talking to someone who has both of her mom's last name. So for for them, that was deeply relevant. And like, and so I don't discredit that. I don't judge No, no, no. I totally all. understand where you're coming from. Yep. No. And just, no, no, just like, even as an adult, as my friends started having kids or getting married, and they're like, well, I really want our family to all have the same last name, or that's really important. And I was like, it's actually not objectively important. So, and when you say that, that is a not so thinly veiled form of homophobia. And, and it's certainly, even if homophobia might feel exaggerated to some people, which it's not, but if it does, then like, it's at least a form of bias and condition that you're allowed to question and think differently about. I'm always fighting against this protective instinct I have toward my moms. Do you have that? Do you feel that way? I guess protective of them against society. Um, definitely, definitely. Um, for being gay and for any of their other faults, <laughs> you know, um, which I think is probably a universal feeling of like wanting to protect your parents um, and by extension, kind of yourself. Anyway, so for sure. Um, I So I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh, I wonder if this was a little bit different apart because I had siblings and my sense of having dear friends who are only children, yourself included, and now dating someone who is an only child, like there's a way that all of the parents' hopes and dreams get put on that one kid and get channeled into that. And it's really like, you have so much love and so much attention. And I had plenty of love and attention, but I also always had to share it. And my mom's very much like, they raised three very different people. And so I think there's a way, I wonder if there's a way that as parents, you have to kind of depersonalize your parenting when you see it turn out so differently for three different kids. So I am not a parent. I have no idea if that's true, but that's some of my like wonderings. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's like, it almost forces you to have slightly more objectivity or like, oh, like my children are separate from my parenting. They're just their own people. Right. And it's no reflection on my quality of my parenting. It's just, that's life. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I think there's definitely something there. That makes me wonder if the parents also felt this other layer of responsibility to you as an adopted child to like, to do right by you, you know, and care for you and protect you in this way. Um, That of course my parents wanted that for me as well, but it's, there's another layer. And that I think has been one of the hardest things for my family to talk about. Those differences, you mean? Or differences mm. between being a biological child who's living with your biological parent and being adopted into a family. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Just like that dynamic is really complex. Like you were into and so you're in your sister, you're biologically related to, right? Yes, yeah. we have different yep. donors. Mm-hmm. Um 
because again, that's like a prying question that straight people are always asking. So sorry, I'm not trying to think I'm not, it's not gratuitous. <laughs> it's, for, it's so I understand better. I'm always like, totally. that's none of your business. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> no, totally. It feels like an important part of the story. We have the same biological mom, different donors. They wanted the same donor for my sister, but he had already been retired. <laughs> you retired from that role. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's, yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, when we first met and when we first got to know each other, I recall you sharing about how your brother was adopted and then you and your sisters, so your sister were biologically related to one of your moms. And I just, that just piqued my interest because I thought, oh my gosh, how unique for your brother and how, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's interesting because like it speaks to the ways in which oh, just we just this enormous bias and fixation, honestly, a, an, an unnatural, unholy fixation on biology and biological families as being sacred is oh, it, it it just uh, it, it colors our entire cultural attitude toward same sex parenting, I feel, you know what I mean? Because it's like, oh, like if you adopt oh, that's not natural. So like that kid's never, that's not really your kid. Oh, if you have a, if you have a biological baby, oh, then they're going to be traumatized. Cause what if they never know their, bi- it's like, it's like, you can't win, you know, that no matter how a, a queer person chooses to compose their family, I feel like there's just some way in which someone will tell them that it's unnatural or wrong. Um, so, I mean, I'm just so interested in your experiences and your sister's experiences. Each of you have had such a fundamentally different experience of being in the same family. I just find that yeah. endlessly fascinating. Oh, I have a thought that I would love your thoughts on. I have always struggled to with language around adoption. I hate the language of she gave her child up for adoption. Like, <clears throat> so the closest I have come to is like she's making a placement plan for her child or she, she placed her child for adoption. But it just, it, <clears throat> everything about adoption to me, like reeks of, natalism and judgment and yeah maybe those two things natalism and judgment yep okay I'm so (laughs) with you and I'm really glad you brought this up because I want to talk about the adoption piece so I've been reading a lot of critiques by adoptees just like I've been reading I've been I've been following the writing and thinking of like adoptees more so in the past few years and I was reading something recently that was like uh, an, you know, an in, a, adoptee, a cross-racial adoptee, so a, a person of color who was adopted by white people, um, who is just, you know, absolutely excoriating the like adoption industrial complex is, you know, extremely, has absolutely no relationship with their adoptive parents. And that was, so the, the reason I'm bringing it up is because this person was talking about terminology and they were critiquing rightfully so perhaps the you know a lot of the dominant language and i'm trying to remember i'm gonna have to go back and look it up but like um the terminology of uh, <coughs> this person used like what i would consider really radical terminology but like go off that's your right they basically called their adoptive what we would call the adoptive parents right like so the people who legally adopted this child they're like it wasn't captors but it was like it was something along the language of of thievery and theft. And it was really, it was, I mean, I think they were meant, they were trying to be a little edgy, but I think like that is how they feel. And I, I honor that. Um, so in thinking about this, 
I came across a document and I wish I had it. I could go find it. Um, that was, it was in a packet of documents that I believe the social work agency that did my parents' home study had given to them. It's, it's the folder I told you about that said, how to adopt for gay slash lesbian people. And uh, in it was talking about the terminology that they were, and I think it, it, at the time, which was, you know, early nineties, 90 or something, they were saying, um, God, I, I, I should, I'll go grab it after, but um it was basically saying like, you know, until the adoption is finalized, we refer to the parents as like the parents or something. And then once the adoption is finalized, we refer to the biological parents as the biological parents and the adoptive, you know, they were just, there was sort of a demarcation line between the point of adoption and the and the point before. And, and the reasoning in this document said that we want to honor the parental rights and respect the parental rights of the biological parents until the adoption is finalized and the legal ownership, I hate to put it like that, but that's how they think about it, is transferred to the new adoptive parents. So I'm like, I really struggle with the right words to use. I completely agree. I despise the term gave up for, it's just so, it's so disempowering to the person who's pregnant. It's so dehumanizing to everyone involved. It's dehumanizing to the child. It just, it feels like, oh, it was a, it was a, a, a toy that I gave up. Like it just, it's so gross on every level. I completely agree. I haven't yet figured out a good, a good solution. And it's something I struggle with all the time. I mean, I'm 31 years old and I still am figuring out what words feel right to talk about like my biological parents versus my parents. I think that's the thing that trips people up when I talk to people who aren't adopted or don't get it. And I refer to like my parents. Oh, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this. I, my entire life, people have been saying, oh, but who are your real parents? Who's your real mom? And it's just so wow. It's like, I don't know why you don't get it. Like, I think that's something that I really struggle with being adopted and dealing with non-adoptees. They just cannot, or I shouldn't say, not to a person, but a lot of people cannot wrap their minds around the fact that I have just as much closeness and affiliation and loyalty to my parents as non-adopted people have to their parents. It, this this idea that an adopted child is somehow distant from you or not your real child is just like so baffling to me because it hasn't been my experience. Granted, I've never grown up in a family where I was raised by the people who birthed me, but I just can't. It's just so crazy. I'm like, what don't you get? What you think that these are like my fake parents that I just it, it's just so I cannot understand why I cannot make people understand that. Yeah, do you I uh, agree with you? And that feels really related to me to this idea that adoptive kids um, feel like on pins and needles or feel really grateful. And it's like, no, no, they're just a child. It's just a kid. Yes. It's just a regular family. (laughs) Totally. Just a regular, regular family. And this feels really related to me of having one non-biological parent because it's like, yeah, that like matters in a certain way and I think about it and sometimes I feel guilt or uncomfortable about that I feel all sorts of complicated ways because of the homophobia that we were raised in that I'm like oh it feels nice to me that I can like look at pictures of my grandfather for example and see where my like the shape of my face came from and I'm like oh I don't want to feel connected to that or I don't want to feel attached to that right so I have all sorts of complicated feelings about that that I think I've gotten easier to hold with age as I've just been able to like hold more complexity um, but this idea that like, that doesn't make me feel more like I belong 
with one parent over the other. It doesn't make me feel any less connected to the non-biological parent, even though I'm still appreciating the ways that I get to know my biological lineage. Like that doesn't then become more important. It's just a part of something that I share with one person and happen to not with somebody else and have all sorts of other things that I share with that other person. I think you put that so beautifully. I love the way you think about that. Because I, I struggle with that too, or not struggle. It's something that comes up in my family too, because I'm biologically related to my one mom and not my other. And I too take a sense of pleasure in seeing, you know, because I, I also, I was raised, you know, knowing my biological family um, and knowing that side, you know, my my grandma, who I'm biologically related to, I'm really close with. And so I, I too take pleasure in like seeing pictures of my grandparents or my, you know, um, ancestral line and being like, wow, we have similar features or, you know, like that sort of affective pleasure of seeing that there is a pleasure in that. And I too take pleasure in that. But I want to ask you, and I want to talk about this a little bit, something I've never, I can't ever recall openly talking about with my mom that I'm not biologically related to is like how she feels about that. We've sort of danced around it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I guess I have to ask her as part of this project is like, how does she feel about the fact that we are not related and how does that make her feel is that something you've ever talked about with your mom that you're not biologically related to that's such a good question i'm having a memory of having talked to her about that like biological relationship comes up with like kind of great frequency in my family more as like points of conversation or so yeah, it's not like it like it's not like it's a hidden secret or something that we don't talk about or something that's taboo. Um, but mostly she just goes to like, oh, I didn't I never wanted to be pregnant. I don't think she has a longing about it, which makes it easier to hold. So probably if she had wanted to have a biological child, if that mattered to her, she would probably feel resentful or jealous or on the outs or whatever. Um and I'm sure that there have been ways that she's felt on the outs because just because of her family's homophobia, that was way harder to deal with than my biological grandparents. We just became much, much, much closer to my biological grandparents. Um, so I don't know that that's about like our nuclear family, but it, it extends outward. So I think she just had more like disconnection for a biological family. And I think that she feels sense about that. Um, but that's not about us, you know? I'm so grateful to Sammy for making time to speak with me and share her brilliance with all of us. For part two of this conversation, tune in to the next episode. Until next time. <laughs>